Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 17th of July, 2023, and this is episode 309. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and author Dr. Sofia Anisimova on Russian military strategy during the Great War. Sofia is a postdoctoral researcher at University College Dublin in Ireland. She spoke to me from her office in South Dublin. So, Sofia, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. May you start by introducing yourself and telling us how you became interested in Russia and, and the Great War. Uh, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for having me here. It's a, it's a great pleasure. I'm a devoted listener of the uh, Mentioned in Dispatches podcast. And um, I am, my name is Sofia Nisimova, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at UCD. I just began my uh, position, my research at UCD a month ago. And previously, I was a PhD student at the University of San Andreas, where I worked on a thesis entitled Russian Military Strategy and the Entente in the First World War. And... Um, I got interested in it. Um, I am Russian, so I was born and raised uh, in Moscow. And I got into the First World War through uh, military history of the Second World War. Because in, in school, in Russia, First World War does not really figure in the curriculum as much as it does in the UK, for instance. So it's not. And in public, in general, First World War sometimes is presented as forgotten war. So there are no narrative that describes the First World War. And I remember it very clearly. There was an article in a newspaper about a, a Soviet general, uh, later Marshal and Minister of the Defense of the Soviet Union, who during the First World War served in Russian Expeditionary Force and had this whole strange experience of being from, from Russia and going through to France from Vladivostok around the world and then staying in France until 1920s and then coming back through the same route by China and, and you know, back in European Russia. So... That story fascinated me. And through the experience of, his name is Radion Malinovsky, and so through his experience and through experience of the Russian Expeditionary Force, which was on the Western Front, and I was reading lots of books about Western Front, I got really into the First World War and decided to pursue my career in the field of First World War studies. Well, we're going to talk about Russia's military strategy, but let's just take it back a couple of years. Now, before the outbreak of war in 1914, what were the main geopolitical and military assumptions that underpinned Russian strategic and military planning? Uh, thanks for your question, Tom. So the thing is, my thesis and what I look at is based on purely military strategy. So basically, it's separated from the level of grand strategy, so which is defined by politicians and diplomats, and a lot of uh, uh, good books written on the topic, so stuff by Dominic Levin and the whole series and the origins of the First World War. And I deal with the military strategies for the people who, for the generals, basically military professionals at the top of the army command who were trying to answer the question of how we're going to win this war and with the limited, obviously, resources available. And so but it's also separated from kind of operational level of planning, so from one theater of one big unit army and so on and so forth. And in terms of military strategy, pre-First World War, uh, pre the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, there was a big understanding in Russia and in France that neither power can win the war by 
themselves, so by alone. So they all, they have to make Germany fight on two fronts at the same time. However, what's interesting and what I explore in the thesis is that even though there was this strategic assumption that the whole goal of the Entente and the coalition is to make Germany fight on two fronts at the same time and being and uh, make it enable to move the troops from one front to another, when actually it came down to strategic planning, when the chief of general staff from Russia and from France sat down together, it never came to the joint planning. So those were sessions. The sessions existed from 1900. So there was regular yearly sessions of uh, chiefs of general staffs from France and Russia. And uh, there was there was a point, uh, those meetings were mostly for France to ask Russia questions and Russia kind of responding in terms of what they're planning to do, where they're going to attack. But there was never an attempt. This is very Interesting, actually. There was never an attempt to say, okay, those are the directions where we're going to attack, and this is kind of the estimated result, what we want to achieve. So it was very broad and never actual planning. So what we're going to see later in the war, when the strategic conferences of the Entente will come along, those were the attempts. So basically, in 1915, 1916, the Entente leaders understood that now they're fighting the war together and they have to produce some sort of a more coordinated plan of how they're going to take on Germany in terms of military. So that's the whole. That's what the whole thesis basically is about. Hopefully, I but I also answered the question that you asked so that, um, about the plan. So let's let's turn to the Russian military system itself. So how did the Russian uh, military planning system work, and how effective was it? Um, so uh, Russian army is in well it's an army of an autocracy an army of an empire so that's in many ways when dealing with military strategy uh for a historian it makes the task much easier because there are always kind of just a string a very hierarchical chain of command beginning with an emperor that can be traced uh, uh that can be traced and the decisions of, of people who are can be traced to certain to their origins, basically. So it's made, it's easier because there are less people making decisions. So there are less people making decisions, and it's basically the emperor and whoever he appoints in charge of the army. So the emperor at the time was Nicholas II, and when the war began, he didn't assume the supreme command of the Russian army, even though and it was tailored for him to be the supreme commander and have to have a chief of staff that will help. Um, the emperor navigate the kind of the military decision making process, but instead, the, the emperor appointed his cousin, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, as the supreme commander. And all the people who worked in the Russian general staff kind of were transferred fr- from general staff into the field health headquarters of the Russian army called Stavka. So Stavka literally translated as the seat of of the commander. So that was the field headquarters of the Russian army, where all decisions regarding the strategy and regarding the conduct of the war were made. And about the emperor, the emperor eventually, Emperor Nicholas II, eventually assumed command in 1915, in uh, September 1915, and he appointed a new chief of staff, whose name was General Alexeyev, and who was a very prominent uh, person in Russian strategic planning from 1915 onwards. He, and basically, he became the person who made all the decisions. It's important, and I think there is lots of um, confusion in, in, sometimes in in non- uh, non-professional scholarship about the role that the emperor and Nicholas II actually played in the command of the Russian army. And that was very limited because actually he understood his own limitations as a military commander. So he had military experience and as pretty much all the members of the Russian royal family at the time did. 
but he, it was definitely not enough to lead several million strong army. So he basically, even though he was present at the headquarters, he outsourced all of his this military decision-making and planning to his chief of staff, General Alexeyev. And before that, it was kind of staff cooperated a bit separate from, from, from the emperor who was in St. Petersburg prior to 1915 at all. So that's uh, so the Russian kind of chain of command and decision-making, all kind of all links, all ties lead to Stavka, to this field headquarters of the Russian army, where you have a limited number of people who have access to planning and who make the decisions and who also bear all responsibility, bore all responsibility. And you may, you may not have, you know, may not be able to answer this, but I was just going to ask, so the army's functioning through through the the czar. How what, how does the navy interface with the um, the army? Uh, so it's an interesting question because uh, now in many, at least in Russia, it's all the armed forces that join. So there is one war ministry that ministry of defense that kind of coordinates them. But back in the day, back in early twentieth uh, century, they were completely separate. So there was separate naval. Uh, ministry and separate war ministry, separate naval general staff, and that was based in the Admiralty, and uh, separate separate kind of um, army general staff. So if uh, so, they functioned sometimes in coordination when they sat together and kind of sometimes um, conversed. But sometimes the goals could be completely different, and in this case, they will come at odds, and they will argue their position in front of the emperor, who makes. The final decision, and I think the good example is the Bosphorus, the notorious Bosphorus expedition. And there is lots of talk about how Russia had this goal of acquiring the Straits and controlling the Straits at the end of the First World War. There is even a book that says um, that it was the reason why Russia kind of started the First World War in the first place and put sort of blame on Russia. However, it's a very revisionist book that follows um, the kind of examines only partial uh, evidence. But the fact is that the Navy and the Emperor and the Foreign Ministry was, were very interested in acquiring the Straits at the end of the war. So when the war began and their opportunity and the Ottoman Empire joined the Central Powers, there was kind of the, the operation of the Bosphorus was very much on the table. And the kind of the power behind the advocates of, the, of these operations were the Naval Ministry, the uh, Foreign Minister and the Emperor who liked the idea. But then when they approached the Actually, the army command, the army command said no, because they didn't have any resources. And most importantly, they also didn't have enough transport ships to actually ferry the troops across uh, the Black Sea, which can be pretty rough in in um, uh, in, in the winter. So the Ottoman Empire joined uh, Central Powers and joined the war in November. So in December, kind of the idea of the Operation Riceville was non-feasible. And the army stood its ground for the whole war. And we can see it in the interaction between them that the army was very staunchly opposed any action at, at the Bosphorus because it was pretty, well, it was in their eyes, it was not feasible and they controlled, they controlled the land troops and they controlled the, the manpower. So they, sometimes they were thought and sometimes on smaller operations, they worked together. So that's, that's the answer. And I, I suppose connected with this, I was just wondering, did the, did the general staff do any sort of work on what type of war they were going to face, whether it would be an industrial war? Obviously, we know what transpired in the trenches, but people's perceptions and, and the ideas of war and what type of war they think they thought they would be fighting. What, how, how did they sort of look at that? And so I'm thinking partly about the impacts of the aeroplane and chemical weapons. Did they sort of plan this ahead or were they thinking about fighting a pretty traditional uh, type of war? Um 
that's a great question actually because Russia had an experience on fighting modern war something close to the modern war in Japan so Russia had experience with there were so there were some limited elements of the, even trench warfare in the or at least fortified warfare in the Russian Japanese war and there were already kind of technological advances available 1904 1905 so Russia had this experience and when Russia lost actually there was a big movement within the army so if you can call them military intellectuals the the kind of younger generation of commanders who were pushing towards an army reform and accepting more kind of technological advances including the advances kind of from the west but there was also a pushback coming from the say um, um, proponents of the Russian nationalist school of thought so there was lots of debate about Russian uh, Russian art of warfare so it's something very nationalist and something that is very and that exists and cannot be applied to the Russian army and the whole kind of the idea behind this I, behind this Russian art of war was that Russia relies on infantry and the most important thing is infant and morale of the soldiers so it has so in Europe and France for instance this debate also resonated because obviously there was the uh, the work from uh, Ardent Dupic and uh, Grand Maison, who had similar ideas about morale, and you know the the whole idea of the elan, this push that the French is, are going to to carry out at the beginning of the war. So in Russia, it existed as well, but it took the form of the Russian kind of nationalist idea of the Russian specific art art of war. So there was this debate as well, and there was a big center, the big brain. Uh, obviously, it's literally called sometimes referred as the brain of the army was the general staff and the academy of general staff. And what I am uh, very interested in, I looked during my thesis and hopefully will look further in the future, is about the whole kind of what the Russian, the, what those officers who taught at the Academy of General Staff and who so often combined the positions of the Academy with the positions of the General Staff itself, how, how, they, wrote, how they thought the next war exactly is going to unfold. And there were people who were saying, who predicted correctly the kind of what, what the new modern war will look like. And... Uh, general staff, some again, some officers uh, correctly identified the technology that they needed to use. So, for instance, Russia was very big on telephone lines and using telephone in in the army in 1914. So they had pretty pretty good supply of of telephones. For instance, comparing to the French, so I saw some notes saying that the French didn't have enough telephones in 1914. Of course, as the war went along, that changed, but. So some some technology was accepted, but obviously it's also important to remember that in terms of technology and production of technology, Russia lagged behind. And that's kind of the whole predicament of Russia in the First World War as well, that the industry was not capable to produce enough shells and enough material to keep kind of, to keep the war going. So Russia had to rely on allies and it took a long time to actually re-route and put the economy on on kind of on the military rail. So there was there was kind of this idea of, of Russia and Russian industrial power as well, kind of underlining the planning and the thought of the of the next war that Russia is going to fight in 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 Academy of General Staff. But the word so Russia never had a central Russian army never had a centralized doctrine, and that is because of all these debates were going going on. So there were never kind of one united idea that was behind kind of Russian action in the First World War. And the, the, there was um, debate in, straight after the Russo-Japanese War about the military doctrine. So it's it even like there were articles in the military magazine and journal published about military doctrine and which ended, apparently, it's an anecdotal evidence, with Nicholas II um, 
kind of putting an end to this debate, saying your only doctrine is that you follow my orders, you take, you do what I say. So that, that and that was obviously a big drawback uh, of the Russian kind of theoretical side and kind of mm, also training side of the Russian army and Russian officers in um, in the First World War is that the lack of unified doctrine and the the lack of kind of one idea behind 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 the training and behind uh, the conduct of of the war and operations on the ground. Let's get to those operations on the ground. So once the war broke out, what um, what was the, I suppose, the broader political aims that the military strategy was aiming to achieve? So Russia faced, in 1914, Russia faced two enemies. So in August 1914, Russia faced two enemies, Germany and Austria-Hungary. So the big kind of uh, conundrum for the Russian general staff was how to... Uh, distribute the forces and who to fight first. And there were two strains uh, of thoughts uh, among Russian officers, general staff officers, those who thought that Austria-Hungary is the weakest enemy, so it needs to be knockout first, and those who thought that the Germany is, on the contrary, is a stronger enemy, but will probably leave less troops on the Eastern Front at the beginning of the war. So whilst Russia had an opportunity, they have to strike Germany and destroy its infantry troops in the East and potentially even advance to into mainland Germany and into Berlin, and the, where they chose to strike was East Prussia. And in 1912, this, <clears throat> there was a big meeting, a conference of the general staff officers and commanders of the Russian military district, because Russia is quite vast, so the army was split into military districts that were later transformed into a group of armies during, during the war. And the compromising plan was that Russia strikes two enemies at once. And it was that predicament actually existed again throughout the whole war. Who were going to attack? And then obviously, uh, Ottoman Empire uh, would also join the war. And then they're going to be Romania who joined the war, but who was collapsing. So where where do where do we strike? Where do we bring our troops? And how do we use our resources? And in 1914, Russia had two so so two carrying out two simultaneous attacks. And at the same time, they also had to think about France and. They also um, not fighting the war alone, but in 1914 the operations pretty much unfolded as they were planned, as parallel events. They had one underlying idea that they have to fight Germany and they have to make Germany to move the troops away from France into the Eastern Front, or kind of use this advantage of, of of all of the Germany power being on the country drawn to France and try to strike in the east so but there was this idea but there were no coordination so lots of the thesis and lots of the kind of debate in the Alton was about coordinating efforts in 1914 we don't see it so it's very it's it comes later in the war and there is even like a very certain in 1915 wasn't a great year for the Alton obviously it wasn't a great year for Russia as well because Russia suffered a major defeat in Poland and which now often referred in historiography as the great retreat so the Austria, or Austro-Hungarian troops and German troops together, concentrated in what was now southeastern Poland, struck uh, the, the the Russian army, made the breakthrough, and the Russian army started to roll back, and they lost most of the territory in Poland. And it was a very costly uh, retreat for the Russians, who lost about a million men in their retreat, uh, POWs and um, dead. And so after that, the supreme command uh, of the Russian army. Change. So that's when actually the emperor assumed command. So the, when the crisis happened and Alexeyev came to power, came to be the person who leads the Russian army and who plans the thing. And uh, the 
kind of the whole realization came onto the Russian high command at the time that now they definitely can't fight this war alone. So now when the Russian army is at its weakest, when it's retreated a bit, it, it saved the army in terms of the structure, but obviously lost lots of people and lots, lot, uh, most importantly, lost lots of professional Russian army that entered the war in 1914. And Alexeyev, who came, comes in 1915, becomes one of the greatest advocates of the coordinated Allied action. So he becomes the person who says, yes, we need to have a conference. Obviously, the French had very similar thoughts at the same time, potentially for the same reason. The Joffre was realizing that the, um, that the toll of the war uh, on the French army was very high. So he had to rely on his allies, the British, as well as the Russians and Italians and everyone else. So he calls them all together to first conference in Calais in uh, July 1915, and then second big conference in December 1915. And Alexeyev uses this opportunity, to prom- especially the December conference, to promote his vision of coordinated offensive. And most importantly, he also says that he has a vision of how the Entente, not just Russian strategy, but the whole Entente strategy shall unfold. And that's where the um, famous Alexeyev's projects, which is um, actually used by the British and French scholars as well comes along. And this is the idea that the Entente should strike not on the main front, not don't, not strike Germany on the Western front and the Eastern front, but rather strike Austria-Hungary and knock it out of the war in the Balkans. So Russia would come through Galicia and the Allies would come from Salonika, which um, kind of became a new front in October 1915. And there were pretty, quite a lot of people talking about Salonika on your podcast, which is uh, great, and the uh, so and the Alexeyev idea was that the Allied would ship sh- ship four hundred thousand troops to Salonika and strike Austria-Hungary from Salonika. So I'm I'm not going to go into how realistic this plan was, but there was a plan. So there was kind of Russian attempt on imposing its will on the Allies and saying that only together we can try and win this war. And that is because exactly because Russia was vulnerable and because they were lacking in material and because they were lacking in people. And this this project comes along when it was probably at most vulnerable point for the whole war. So what was Militarily, sorry, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I oh, no, no, no worries. Um, so what sort of military problems did the Russians face in their strategy? And how did their strategy evolve up to the revolutions in 1917? Uh, so uh, obviously the problems that the Entente had in Russia within the Entente was the... Com- communications. And there's lots of, obviously, there is lots of research made, very good research made on Anglo-French Entente in the Western Front. But there was a big advantage of the Anglo-French Entente, because the armies were fighting next to each other, and there were communication routes that were still open. So the, the French commanders, so Robertson could meet Joffre, and um, the French Prime Minister could meet uh, British Prime Minister. There was a big advantage of kind of coordinating. And Russia was far away. But even on the even before the war, uh, it would take several days to reach by train or five days to reach by boat. So, um, but during the war, it took much much longer, and obviously no political leaders would go for it, would risk going to Russia. As we know, the person who tried was Lord Kitchener, who sadly uh, died uh, exactly because the crossing the the seas in nineteen sixteen was pretty dangerous business with all the German U-boats and, and the mines and so on and so forth. So Russia was trying to fight, in, especially after 1915, 15, 
Russia was trying to fight a war with the Allies, but it was difficult to coordinate and it was very difficult to manage. At the same time, as in any coalition, to fight a war with, with a coalition, you have to sometimes, sometimes to concede some of your national interests to accommodate your allies' interests and then achieve a consensus and achieve a, a coordinated strategy. But that can be very painful in terms of national pride and can be very, kind of, and, in, and as I mentioned already, the whole kind of Russian nationalism in, in the military thought was very prominent in, 19, uh, in, uh, uh, in 1914 and prior to 1914. So some officers, uh, especially officers on the ground, kind of disliked the allies because they thought that Russia was making sacrifice on their behalf and they're not doing anything, uh, not much for Russia. Because again, Western Front was very far and the understanding in Russia what the trench warfare is like only came in 19, 1960 because the Eastern Front was much more uh, maneuverable until 1915. So, And even in 1915, the trenches that exist in the Eastern Front were not quite the same as on the Western Front. This idea of, of a trench stalemate only came to Russia after the 19, 1916 period of fighting and look some trench fighting than Russian troops also did. And th those operations were equally unsuccessful as on the Western Front. So there was, there was this, the communication and the imagery of the Allies. And obviously there was a big uh, internal, so on the external uh, side of things, on the internal side of things, obviously there was a political crisis coming. And 1915 is also a breaking point in terms of, kind of, of political uh, breakdown inside of Russia because the Great Retreat, of the Russian troops took its toll on on the population because all hopes of Russia winning the war in 1914 was in public mind was pretty pretty good year Russia won Galicia and early 19 and kind of did um, Galicia it's a part of part of the Austria uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire so and uh, defeated some of the Austro-Hungarian troops so that that was perceived as a, obviously as a victory. And uh, early 1915 was also a pretty good time. In, again, in public eye, the Przemysl, the fortress, Austro-Hungarian fortress in Galicia fell. The Russian troops were advancing. But then in May, obviously, they all the, the fate turned, turned around. And uh, there was lots of political kind of unrest in terms of, and there was lots of political hatred and violence um, in kind of addressed to the government, who was in many, in the eyes of the opposition, unable to provide the army with material and supplies to actually fight the war. And lots of the uh, great retreat was often blamed on the lack of material, lack of shells and what is called munitions famine. In, in Russian, there is like a, a, a historiographical term uh, for that, for the munitions shortage. So, um, and that's when kind of the, also the Alexeyev and the people around him and in New, in new Russian Stavka, uh, from August 1915, they realized that there is lots of pressure coming from uh, internal problems. And obviously, revolution is not on the cards yet. But as some memories say that the, this unrest was palpable. So even people didn't say the revolution was coming. There was something in the air. And the, the quote, exact quote, one of the officers who served in the Russian headquarters, who says that um, you can feel that the revolution was coming as well as you can feel that storm is coming when you see the gray clouds. So, so, so there was kind of lots of pressure coming from inside. And uh, I think a big predicament for Alexeyev in 1916 uh, so was that 
he and one of the reasons why he was so adamant about the kind of coordinated strategy and the, why he accepted also the the, the conclusions of the Chanty conference, which were uh, we're going to strike Germany on the main front, but we're going to strike them in a coordinated way at the same time, pretty much. They will try to achieve some alternative action. Why he accepts that and he concedes some of the Russian national interests and his ideas of striking Austria-Hungary uh, to, um, to the big allied strategy, because I think there is kind of this understanding that it's race against time. So if Russia is not, is not going to be able to hold the line and there will be more defeats from Germany coming, there will be a revolution at home. Also, if this war is going to go long enough, even without major defeats, there will be a revolution at home. So to preserve Russia as a state, to preserve Russia as an empire, they needed to achieve victory soon, uh, as soon as they could. And the soonest way of achieving victory was obviously coordinating with the Allies. So that's kind of the big, the big problem for, for, the, for the Russian command at the time. And uh, obviously, obviously they failed. Uh, at least on the internal pressure side, uh, or to quote Alexei, internal enemy, that um, they failed. But yes, but at least they identified this correctly. As, well, as it turns out, let it transpire. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Russian revolutions come, um, I think from my recollection, there's one in February, one in October, though I could stand corrected on that. Um, and so the Russian revolutions happened. So how did they affect Russia's military strategy? So this is actually part that didn't make it to my thesis, but this is something that I hope to include in the book if it if it will become a book one day. And because Russian Revolution, which is called February Revolution, uh, but it actually happened in March because Russia was following the Julian calendar until 1918. And the difference between Julian calendar and Gregorian calendar, which was we will use now and was in the time used in most of the Western countries, uh, was about two weeks. So what was happening in February, Julian calendar was happening actually in March, uh, Gregorian calendar. So, but it's called February revolutions as a historiographical kind of get term. So we're going to keep keep referring it to February revolution. But for clarity, it happened in March and uh, March 1917. So uh, the February revolution come, and this is a liberal anti-monarchist revolution. Uh, the emperor abdicates and uh, the power comes to the provisional government. And this is, Obviously, more democratic government that has connection to the Russian parliament called Duma that exists at the time. Um, and uh, also, it exists kind of as a second center of power. And another center of power is the Petrograd Soviet, which is a pure revolutionary kind of Soviet um, socialist, a more socialist and left leaning kind of center of power at the time. And that means. The revolution means, in terms of military strategy, is that there are more actors who are making decisions. So if there was an emperor who gave all his power to his chief of staff and the chief of staff was saying, we're doing this, and nobody could question him because he is, again, he got his legitimacy from the emperor's power, who himself got legitimacy from God. So now you have provisional government and you also have multiple ch you know, challenges of the provisional government and the Petrograd Soviet and staff. So who is going to make the decision? Who is going to lead the army? And until nineteen, until uh, pretty much um, summer offensive nineteen seventeen, and the power still resides with Stavka. So the provisional government sort of understands that let the military conduct the war, and Alexeyev remains uh, the chief of staff, and then he becomes actually the supreme commander of the Russian army. He's appointed, but then in May he resigns uh, because the provisional government wants someone more proactive 
in this role, because again, the Russian offensive in 1917 is a political offense. It's, it's no longer coordinated with the Allies because the Allies already had their shot at, 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 uh, at the German army in 1917 with the Nivelle Offensive and they lost. And so the R- Russia cannot, cannot coordinate it with the Allies anymore. So, but they need a victory to kind of to give legitimacy to the revolutionary government. And that's why in, in the, 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 the offensive is happening in um, uh, 1917, in summer 1917. And so the, the, in short, the February Revolution brings more consideration, more political considerations to the table, brings more actors to the table, but also, most importantly, doesn't take Russia out of the war. The provisional government says that we're still going, we're going to fulfill our obligations to the Allies. We're going to keep Russia in the war, and um, the October Revolution, or sometimes referred as October Coup, Bolshevik Coup, they kind of changes this policy entirely because the Bolsheviks got popular on the slogan of uh, stop well uh, stop the war and peace with uh, with no annexations or contributions famously famous kind of socialist slogan from from the Russian from the Russian Revolution and as soon as the Bolsheviks come to power they try to negotiate their armistice with with the Germans because the whole point of kind of Bolshevik power was to stop the war and kind of try to build Russia according to the new kind of to the ideological kind of socialist values of, of, of the Bolsheviks. So as soon as, as the October coup happened, the negotiations for the armistice began. And in December 1917, the armistice is achieved. And as we know, in March 1917, a peace treaty signed in Brest-Litovsk, which takes Russia out of the war, finally. However, to, and now, especially in Ireland, it's, it's a big idea that the Great War obviously didn't end, end in 1918. Then there is the idea that the Greater Great War that lasted for several years after the war ended because it disintegrated in the local uh, n- n- international and intranational conflict. Right? And, and for Russia, it works very well because it's important to understand that for people who served in the Russian Imperial Army, the Imperial Army was de- demobilized and disbanded, but then all they almost... Uh, like within weeks were recruited into the Red Army or sometimes in the White Army if they chose to do so. So there was a period of constant fighting and constant military mobilization of the population, which didn't end in 1918. So in this respect, uh, in, in the respect of the Russian Imperial Army, yes, the war ended for the Russian Imperial Army in March 1918. But for the people, for the soldiers of Russian Imperial Army, for the soldiers of Russia, the war didn't end until pretty much 1922 for some of them. And there was lots of fighting in Central Asia until 19, uh, 1920. So John, uh, from, uh, John Smeal, who wrote a book called Russian Civil Wars. So he puts the end to, it, to that period in 1926 because of lots of fighting in, 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 uh, in happening in Central Asia. So, which was the last front of the Civil War. But yes, so uh, in my thesis, obviously, the, because I focus on the Russian Imperial Army, it ends in uh, 1917 when the Bolshevik come and say, we're not going to negotiate with the Allies and we're going to achieve the armistice. But it's important to understand that actually the war and the violence in the Eastern Europe and in Russia continued. And actually, because Russia was obviously, the Russian Empire wasn't just in Europe, so it took all the violence to Asia as well, Central Asia and the, the Far East, the Russian Far East that continued in early 1920s as well. Now, reflecting on, I suppose, Russian imperial military strategy, how would you assess its impact and legacy? Uh, 
so thank you very much because it's something that is not so evident it's not very research but i think the greatest legacy of the russian military strategy and uh strategy like planning because lots of lots of what i look at um are plans that would never into fruition with never succeeded but the word is plans and the word this idea is kind of floating around and the greatest legacy of this thinking and ideas floating around i believe was creation of the soviet operational art because one of the first uh decisions well not one of the first one of the big decisions that trotsky made in 1918 when uh he became in charge of the army and navy was to create a special commission that would process the experience of the past war and make some lessons for the army and that commission existed in, until 1922 and that was set in 1918 and bolsheviks the, and in russia was pretty much in a unique position because bolsheviks declassified every single russian imperial document which was available for the researchers and for the military who for the military professionals who were former russian imperial army officers russian general staff officers who came to process this this information and this experience of the, of the russia russian imperial army in the first world war and i think the works of this commission which was later expanded to include the civil war as well the works of this commission and the works of these people who fought in the russian imperial army who were from the russian imperial general staff who later went to teach in the in the red academy of the general staff the academy of general staff of the red army they laid the foundation of the soviet operational art and soviet operational theory and kind of the, the soviet military theories in 19 theory of 1920s and 30 so uh, hopefully it's what i will going to do in the next 3 years so work on the on on this kind of theoretical legacy of of the first world war in russia and the development of the soviet doctrine 1920s and 1930s so yes i think that's it's the ideas and the kind of intellectual legacy that's very important which leads us neatly onto the final question is where can people learn more about your current work and future work so uh hopefully the thesis about the strategy will uh become a book which will include the february revolution and you know the revolutionary strategy of russia as well um but uh meanwhile you can check out my twitter account and uh which is uh my uh initials sd anisimova my name and the also the website of our project at UCD the project UCD where I'm currently working on is the led by Robert Gavar uh is dedicated to the civil wars in Europe and the website is civil-wars.eu so and there will be lots of workshops coming and lots of presentation and conference programs coming as well so i think so if you're interested in uh russian civil war in the russian army and also in uh civil wars in ireland finland uh spain and Greece please come along and uh, join us for our workshops and conferences and events on this very interesting project by the civil wars fire thank you very much for your time thanks very much tom you have been listening to the mentioned in dispatches podcast from the western front association with me tom thorp thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2100.
Until next time.